Well, good morning. So I was here back in February, and uh, some of you all know, may, may know that uh, I grew up in this church. It looked bigger then, but it's still pretty big. <laughs> um, I grew up in this church, but when I came in February, I hadn't been here for, I think, about 20 years. And uh, what, my, I don't have people in Fayetteville anymore. Um, so when Lowell asked me to come preach to you just a few months later to be able to come back, I was just so thrilled and I'm really touched and delighted to be here with you this morning. Oh, I think we can all agree that our readings this morning are perfect for Stewardship Sunday. Okay, so Exodus, right? You've got... Uh, Moses has been up on the mountain talking to God, and he's been gone for a good long while. The Hebrew people are beginning to wig out just a little bit. Where did he go? To comfort them, reassure them. Aaron comes up with a brilliant idea. Take all their gold and turn it into a statue that they can worship right there in their midst. It may not come as a surprise. God was livid with them. However... There's a clear takeaway, I think, for us, and obviously it's that God doesn't want us to bring gold anywhere near our church, lest we get confused about what it is that we are really worshiping. In fact, just to be on the safe side, I think that we should all just leave our wallets home. Do not bring any money of any form into this sanctuary. Lowell, that's pretty much the message you had in mind, right? For this. <laughs> Okay, obviously that is not the right message because the gospel goes in a completely different direction. Here we have a guy who shows up to take part in God's lavish feast and he gets thrown out for not being appropriately dressed. I think we can all see where this is going. Jesus wants us to organize a committee of bouncers to decide who gets into church or not based on their fashion sensibility. So uh, just to be helpful, I have already started a little list of fashion criteria. And uh, I've also got a sign-up sheet here for anybody who wants to join the committee. And if you don't mind, if you could also, when you put your name down, uh, if you could just put down how much you can bench press right here. Okay. Good. How am I doing, Lowell? <laughs> okay, truth is, both of these readings make God sound a little <clears throat> harsh. God's going to consume the people of Israel. God's going to destroy those murderers and burn their city. This plays into a conventional read on our tradition, which is that we worship a wrathful and vindictive God. Now, I'm not going to make any assumptions about anybody who is here this morning, but I'm going to go out on a limb and guess that this is actually not how most of us view God. So let me ask you, truthfully, how much do you really believe that God steps into our world for real at all? I mean, sure, maybe you've experienced God showing up in subtle moments 
when you're struggling and you need an emotional lift. But the world we live in is in crisis, chronically, it seems, these days. What is God doing about it? Do any of us really believe that God is going to rain electrical generators down on the people of Puerto Rico? I don't think so. And why not? Because we know that's not how God operates. But this creates a problem for us in a world where there is so much suffering, where there is so much hate-filled violence, for God not to show up visibly, forcibly, well, it makes God look feckless, weak, and irresponsible. So let's get honest. If you believe that God is an actual force in our world with actual power, how does that power work? What is our relationship to it? How do we engage it and help bring it to bear on the intractable challenges that we face? With these questions in view, let's take a look at our gospel reading this morning. Jesus says that the kingdom of heaven is like a king throwing a wedding feast for his son. The king sends servants to call the guests who ignore the invitation the king sends more servants with a more insistent message. Tell them, oxen, fatted calves, everything is ready. These would-be guests seem to be of the mind that the king's hospitality is, eh, lame. Some of them are so openly disdainful of the king's power that they become violent, taunting and killing his servants. When the king becomes violent in turn, he's demonstrating that though he is generous, he is not weak. He can use his power to throw extravagant feasts for his guests, or he can use his power to wipe entire cities off the face of the earth. Either way, the message is, don't underestimate this god. In the story, the king is now done with his loser friends. So he sends his servants out into the streets to call anyone they come across, no filters. Soon the hall is filled to the brim. And here the story takes an interesting turn. The king strides into the banquet hall to gaze with satisfaction upon his guests. Now this is what he wanted to see. Hundreds of people reclining at tables, ooing and eyeing at his impeccable taste, the meat, the grapes, the wine from his personal vineyard. Uh, but uh, wait, uh, who's the guy in his undershirt? Once again, the king goes ballistic. There's a big debate in liberal theological circles about whether this man could have gotten a wedding robe, you know, on his own. I mean, the guests were all summoned from the streets. Maybe he didn't have time to get a robe. You know what? This is the kind of mealy-mouthed excuse that makes us look like theological wimps 
and makes our God look like an arbitrarily violent jerk. The Greek basically translates, the man had not put on the thing you put on. Everybody else in that hall came in off the street too, and every one of them is wearing the thing you put on. When I look at this guy through my Arkansas lens, this is what I see. He's the guy who wears his sneakers without socks. And when it rains, he goes jumping around in the puddles, and he never lets his shoes dry, and those are the shoes that he wears to this wedding. And you know how they smell. I don't think that it's poor, and he doesn't have other shoes. I think he just couldn't be bothered to put on a better pair. And you just know. The first thing that he does when he reclines at that table is he kicks those shoes off. And the smell is all anyone can focus on. After all that poor king has been through, he just loses it, and frankly, I don't blame him. Okay, okay, maybe the king's response is a little bit over the top. What is Jesus saying here? Remember that the setting for this parable is a wedding feast. The word wedding appears eight times, eight times in this passage, which is kind of noteworthy given that Jesus spends zero time talking about the couple getting married. The Greek word for wedding is from an ancient root that means to join or to to bind. To describe the kingdom of heaven, Jesus conjures an image of a huge, opulent party with one central purpose, to bring people together, people who are making a commitment to one another. These people have to put effort into making this relationship work, keeping this family alive and intact. When you and I are invited into this kingdom, this is part of what we take on. Yes, it is a free and open invitation to an unimaginably lavish feast. But we have to put energy into claiming it. When this guy shows up, not having done the most basic thing, wearing the designated robe, he isn't taking up his part. And when the rest of us have to deal with his stinky feet, it distracts from our work and our entire mission is diluted. In the story, the king orders this man's hands and feet to be bound. Jesus talks about wailing and gnashing of teeth in other places, but this is the only place where he inserts this piece about binding somebody's hands, which means that this binding takes place against the backdrop of a wedding. It's an inversion, which I think is akin to the inversion that we saw earlier in the king's murderous rage against people who had committed murder. 
The idea here is that we have power to set certain dynamics into motion. If we use that power to commit violence, violence will almost certainly come back to us. Flip side, if we fail to use our power, sorry, my hands are tied, then our hands may become, in a literal sense, tied. Having failed to help bring people together, we'll find ourselves cast aside from the cosmic effort to affect reconciliation. The challenge of our faith, our Christian faith, has always been to demonstrate the power of a God who does not use power in conventional militaristic ways. But first, we have to believe in the power that we proclaim. It's fine for us to reject fire and brimstone, but this parable calls us out on whatever tendency we might have to believe that God's power is really just a bunch of mealy-mouthed, feckless crap. Great for a feel-good moment, but impact the world? Eh, not so much. My friends, it is our job as Christians to show the world that the power of God is a real thing, to make it plainly, graphically, authentically visible in the world. We do this primarily by building Christian communities of strength and courage and deep care. We do this by claiming our power and using it well, both inside our walls and outside in our witness. We do this by building communities where justice is a real force, where hospitality is lavish, offered freely, to people who are hungry to claim it. St. Paul's is already such a place. You witness to it in your commitment to ministries like Magdalene House. You witness to it when you stand with LGBTQ people to counter the violence of a false gospel. You witness to it when you bear each other up and when you gather to worship God with such beauty and such joy. Today is a day that is set aside for us to declare our commitment to this place. A big part of that involves a financial commitment, as you know. For many of us, St. Paul's is not just some random charity, it is our community, our home, and it matters for us to take responsibility for its overall health in the same way that we take responsibility for the homes that we each live in and the family members who depend on us. I am something of a prodigal daughter here, and I can't tell you how deeply it affected me when I came back last February and saw that the home that had nurtured me so well with such love is, if anything, even stronger than it was when I was a child here. 
I know that you take the financial part of your commitment seriously, and I just want you to know how deeply grateful I am, and many of us are, for keeping this place alive and healthy. So I hope that you don't think me ungrateful when I tell you that I am here this morning to ask even more of you above and beyond your financial commitment. St. Paul's is in the midst of a big transition with Lowell about to leave. This can be a time when some parishes falter, and I am asking you to keep St. Paul's strong. I am asking you, each of you, personally, to commit to sustaining a community that is so healthy, so alive, so filled with dignity and integrity that the power of God is plainly evident to anyone who sees you. I am asking you to continue to build a community that you want to invest in, not because this is a place where God's power is a nice idea or a pleasant diversion or an occasional feel-good moment, but because this is a place where the power of God is a force to be reckoned with, and we reckon with it, and we make it visible in the world every single day of our lives. Amen. <laughs>